Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, a going on in detail about visions, a puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, uh, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Thanks be to God for his word. Join me once more in a brief word of prayer. Father, we need your help this morning. Would the Holy Spirit who inspired this text come and open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Grant us to come to the Christ of the text by faith as we receive your words in faith and humility. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ. Amen. Well, in the 19th century, the world of Western nursing and medical hygiene was revolutionized uh, through the influence of a British woman uh, named Florence Nightingale. Florence was born in 1820 to wealthy British parents. Early in her life, it became apparent that Florence was an exceptionally sharp and motivated young woman. And much to her parents' disdain, Florence declined to enter the high society into which she was born. And instead, she pursued a career in nursing, which in those days was not a reputable field. Well, as a nurse, Florence Nightingale was a careful thinker uh, and an astute observer. And as Florence surveyed the medical world of her day, and especially as she worked in hospitals, Florence concluded that medical practice throughout the Western world was badly in need of reform. And part of the problem, as Florence observed, was that the medical community was preoccupied with things that didn't actually matter to the health and recovery of patients. So, for example, in her book, Notes on Nursing, Florence Nightingale writes about how there was widespread superstition among nurses about night air, quote-unquote. Literally, that's just the air that's outside during the evening. Uh, no one could really give a precise scientific reason why, uh, but night air was considered by many nurses to be detrimental to the sick. And so nurses neglected to supply their patients with fresh air uh, during the evening by hermetically sealing windows and refusing to open them. And as you might imagine, in a world before air conditioning, 
Uh, Lots of people in the same room breathing the same air all night with no window open did in fact create some very special night air that wasn't exactly an ideal environment for recovery. A fear of night air was misplaced, and so the medical community was preoccupied with the wrong kind of rules. One more example, Uh, Nightingale writes about how many nurses would leave bedpans that were used, that contained what bedpans contain, with no lid on them, in the room with sick patients at length. And this was considered okay because nurses believed that the only problem with, with the presence of waste in the room with the sick people was the smell. And they thought that they could cover over the smell with the use of fumigations or very strong-smelling other substances, which if they were strong enough to cover that smell, could not have been good for you. Uh, But fumigations, it was thought, saved nurses time from having to empty out the bedpans every time they were used. And Florence argued rightly that this was bad practice, resulting again from preoccupation with the wrong thing. Right? Nurses didn't need to focus on the smell. They needed to focus on the air quality and the filth that was seeping, evaporating into the air that the patients were breathing. Again, the nursing community was focused on the wrong thing. And through many years of writing and advocacy, Florence Nightingale reformed a world of nursing which had previously been occupied with rules that didn't matter. Rules, in fact, which were destructively distracting. Well, in our passage from Colossians this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul finally gets around to taking aim directly at the false teaching that was threatening the Christians in Colossae. We've mentioned several times throughout our series in Colossians, Paul has been warming up to his attack on the false teachers for a while now. And at last, in our passage Colossians 2, 16 to 23, uh, Paul weaponizes some of the themes about Jesus that he's been developing uh, to attack directly the specifics of the false teaching that he was concerned about. Paul starts to unpack exactly what this false teaching looked like and what was so wrong with it. And here, I think, is the heart of Paul's message to us today. And if it sounds familiar to you, it's because you have a good memory. The heart of Paul's message is, if you have Jesus, don't bother with rules that don't matter. If you have Jesus, don't bother with rules that don't matter. Paul certainly is not against all rules. He will give some himself later in Colossians. But Paul seems to think that there are fallacies and practices like the British nurse's fear of night air and their use of fumigations, which actually don't help in the Christian life, and which in fact threaten to be destructively distracting from what does matter. So let me just say briefly at the outset, uh, at first glance, I could understand if this passage might seem to you not really to have much to do with us today. It's a passage that combats a false teaching that doesn't appear to exist anymore, at least not in any influential form. I don't know any church members who are struggling with, verse 18, the worship of angels. Praise God. But let me encourage you, uh, beloved, to attend carefully to the words of our living God in this passage. 
Uh, The Holy Spirit thinks that Paul's warnings here were worth including in Scripture, which is all of God's Word for all of God's people people for all time. So even if we don't find ourselves in exactly the same situation as the Colossians, I trust that we'll find Paul's words help us understand the nature of true Christian worship, of true Christian spirituality. I trust we'll even be challenged to consider uh, whether we might have attached an undue importance to things that don't really matter, or whether sometimes we act from the same wrong motives that animated unhealthy worship in Paul's day. Uh, Three points this morning. Each point is a statement about Jesus and an accompanying instruction. I'll give them to you as we go along. There is some overlap between the points. So three points, statement about Jesus, accompanying instruction in each of them. First point, Jesus is the substance. So don't mind the shadow. That's verses 16 and 17. Jesus is the substance. So don't mind the shadow. Uh, Look there at verses 16 and 17 with me. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So picture with me in your minds that you're standing outdoors around the time of the sunset, and from far away, uh, you see a man walking toward you, a tall man, say 6'4 or so. The sun is behind this man, and you can't quite make out who he is, but you can tell that he's coming toward you. Well, as the man approaches, because the sun is behind him, the thing that meets you first is his shadow. What initially draws your attention is the shadow that the man casts, his silhouette against the sun. And naturally, his shadow is shaped like him. It's his shadow. Uh, But it isn't the same thing as him. As the man keeps walking, uh, eventually his shadow becomes less prominent and you begin to be able to make out who it is. You begin to be able to discern this man's face and you realize it's John Dayton, 6'4", coming to me. I know him. You recognize him and you embrace not his shadow, uh, but him, right? Well, brothers and sisters, that's something like the image that Paul gives us here for understanding the relationship between the Old Testament ceremonial law and the person of Jesus Christ. See, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, God's plan has been to send the Lord Jesus Christ to save his people to suffer on their behalf, to rise from the dead, to give eternal life to everyone who will believe in him, to crush the head of the serpent who deceived them in the beginning. And as redemptive history slowly unfolded, right, as the coming of Jesus approached in time, it's like Jesus' shadow, his outline, the shape of the salvation that he would accomplish, it was projected forward in time in the law of Moses, particularly before Jesus got there. The shadow was a means by which those before Christ were to know something of Christ. 
and to trust in Him. Paul mentions several Old Testament rules and regulations, which here he describes as shadows of the things to come. First, he mentions there in verse 16, questions of food and drink, alluding to Old Testament dietary laws. You can read about those in the book of Leviticus. Uh, See, in the Old Testament, there were certain dietary restrictions which the covenant people of God, the people of Israel, were required to observe. Uh, They could only eat the meat of ceremonially clean animals. Uh, So, for example, they couldn't eat pork. Uh, They couldn't eat animals that had died naturally. You can read more about that again in Leviticus. And as we heard in our scripture reading from Matthew 15, uh, which Ashley read for us, I'm sorry, which Don read for us this morning, uh, these dietary laws, they were never an end in themselves. Uh, To Jesus, the Old Testament cleanliness and dietary laws were an illustration. They were an instructive symbol built into the life of God's people. The dietary laws were meant to hammer into God's people the truth that God is holy. He is 100% morally pure. He is distinct and separate. He is special and set apart from his creation. And anyone who wants to live in relationship with God must be holy must be morally pure, must be set apart to him as well. Uh, So the food laws illustrated that some things, even some things that were treated as normal by people who didn't belong to God, like pork, those things were to be regarded as unclean, as unholy, as incompatible with being God's people by God's people. Jesus taught that the ceremonial uncleanliness of things like pork was a symbol to teach God's people how to treat things like, as he says in Matthew 15, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, false witness, and slander. So Paul is saying in Colossians that these Old Testament cleanliness and dietary laws, they were an instructive precursor. They were a life and community shaping illustration. They were a shadow of the moral holiness that Jesus would create in his people when he came to cleanse and forgive and change the deepest part of them, their hearts. When Jesus came to set apart a people, not through dietary laws, but through faith and relationship with the living, holy God. So here's Paul's application of this truth. And now that Jesus has come, and now that Jesus has brought the substance of the purity and the holiness foreshadowed in the Old Testament dietary laws, Christians shouldn't be bothered by anyone who wants to judge them for failing to observe the shadow. Paul says to us, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Paul means here that we are not to be bound by human opinions which declare any foods or any drinks as inherently unclean or sinful. So sinful abuse of foods or of drinks, that is another matter. Clearly, that is forbidden in Scripture, and so is the violation of one's own conscience. 
Uh, But as Paul says in Romans chapter 14, uh, speaking specifically about foods and drinks, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Uh, Paul addresses other Old Testament shadows there in verse 16. He continues, let no one pass judgment on you uh, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So Old Testament festivals or feasts like the Passover or like the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, many of these were divinely instituted ways to remember God's redemptive acts in the history of Israel. And they're also shadows of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. So think for a minute about the Feast of Firstfruits. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel lived in an agricultural society. And so when the crops Israel had planted began to bear fruit, uh, Israel was commanded to bring, in the law of Moses, they were commanded to bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest as an offering to God, honoring God as the giver of the new life in the harvest. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus is the seed sown in death who first bursts up into new and eternal life. His resurrection is merely the first sheaf of the whole harvest. The feast of first fruits is a shadow of the substance belonging to Jesus. He's the first sheaf to rise from the grave. But there's a whole harvest coming of people united to him who one day, like him, will be raised in eternal life. The Feast of First Fruits is a shadow of Jesus. We could spend time thinking about how the Passover is as well, how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Feast of Booths is as well. Jesus is God come to tabernacle with us as God did in the Old Testament tabernacle. So Christian... When you read your Bible, be looking for shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. Look for ways that Jesus and the people he creates and the salvation that he brings are prefigured before you in the Old Testament. That might sound a strange way to grow as a Christian, but judging from the way that God has written the Bible... And judging from the way the authors of the New Testament relate to the Old Testament, God thinks that it's important for your growth as a Christian that you learn to see the shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament. That's God's decided way for us to know of Christ as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to have our hearts burn within us as we see Jesus in the text, as we see the need that he is coming to meet, has come to meet, has met for us. That's how God wants us to grow, to see Jesus' shadow in the scriptures and to come ultimately to him himself. Commentators point out that the Greek word translated as substance uh, there in verse 17 can also be translated as a body. It's the same word Paul has used elsewhere in Colossians to describe both Jesus' physical body uh, and the church, the body of Christ. So it seems like Paul might be making a play on words here. Uh, Jesus, his physical body that accomplished atonement, and his body, the church, they're the body that casts the shadow into the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament realities are shaped by the body. They look like it. They're not themselves the thing, the substance, the body. So don't be surprised if when you're looking for the shadow of Jesus, you see also the shadow of his church. You see the shadow of the New Testament people of God. Paul also mentions as shadows new moons and Sabbaths. So in the Old Testament, those were monthly and weekly ceremonies, uh, which involved regular offerings and religious assemblies. Uh, The Sabbath in particular, you know, was a day of rest, parallel to God's own rest on the seventh day of creation. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, we find a rich development of this idea that Jesus brings the Sabbath rest of the people of God. Jesus is bringing God's people to a land where they will have rest with him forever. So Christian, if you're tired, rest is coming. Listen, regular Sabbath-like rest is wise in this life. Of course, absolutely. Get Sabbath-like rest if you can. Uh, But listen to what Revelation 14, 13 says about the rest and the reward that believers have to look forward to. Uh, John writes, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Brother James, I trust that being an elder will be a busy calling for you. But brothers and sisters, there's rest coming for those who labor in the service of King Jesus. The way that Paul speaks about the Sabbath here in Colossians 2, it really seems to discourage imposing rules on others about what may and may not be done on Sunday. Many Christians have called Sunday the Christian Sabbath. The Bible never calls it that. It does call it the Lord's Day, and I think there is something of a biblical theological theme there, but Sunday's never called the Sabbath in the Bible. And again, to be really clear, uh, there's much to be said about a theology and a practice of wise and regular rest, even weekly rest. And it's very good. It's God-honoring that we would devote most of our Lord's Day or much of our Lord's Day to worshiping together. And we are very clearly commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are commanded, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, not to forsake the gathering as a church. Uh, But beyond that, again, look at Paul's plain words. He says, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a Sabbath. We need not go back to the prefiguring rituals of the Old Testament because Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. First point, Jesus is the substance, don't mind the shadow. Second point, Jesus is the head, so don't do empty religion. Jesus is the head, so don't do empty religion. That's verses 18 and 19. Look again at those verses with me. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
It's very clear from what Paul says elsewhere that what he means by head, capital H in our Bibles, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses 16 and 17, in our first point, uh, Paul seems to be addressing the so-called Judaizers, or people who want to drag Christians backward in redemptive history to the Old Testament. Uh, Here in verses 18 and 19, uh, Paul seems to move to address people who were incorporating features of other religions into their worship of Jesus. Sometimes the word we use for that is syncretism. So in his warning against empty religion or syncretism, Paul mentions specifically three things that these problematic teachers might be insisting on. Now, the first one is asceticism. That's not a word we use every day, or at least I don't. The basic idea here seems to be that false humility is what these people are after, or possibly, as Paul writes later, severity to the body. Asceticism, properly speaking, is being really hard on your physical body for a spiritual purpose. So asceticism involved things that looked like hardcore religion, especially things like strict fasting. Uh, This word translated asceticism gets used apparently in Old Testament Judaism or in some, some writings to describe strict fasting. And in the medieval period of the Christian church, in the monastic or the monastery movement, uh, many in the church went crazy on asceticism. In some circles, it was seen as spiritual uh, to make yourself miserable and physically uncomfortable. People would wear hair shirts. That sounds so awful. I don't want to wear a hair shirt. Well, good news is we don't have to. What Paul is talking about there could also involve trying to seem humble and spiritual before other people. That's another possible nuance of that word asceticism. Elsewhere, that word just gets translated as humility in a positive sense. So it could be that these false teachers were trying to seem really humble and spiritual in front of other people. Are you ever tempted to do that? Do you ever do or say things for the specific purpose of appearing humble and spiritual before other people. I've certainly done that. Maybe the Colossian heresy is alive in our hearts. So the first thing Paul warns against there is asceticism. Second thing Paul mentions as empty religion is the worship of angels. So Paul could mean that these people are literally giving worship or devotion to angels or praying to them for protection. And that's clearly condemned. The Bible says we are to worship and serve only the triune God. If it is not the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, do not worship it. But some of the words Paul uses here suggest actually that he might be talking about mystical experiences where people would have visions of heaven and they would see the angels worshiping God and they would join in these mystical experiences in the angelic worship. That could be what Paul is talking about. And that sounds really strange to us, but it's well attested in the ancient world. And it goes along with the third thing that Paul warns against, uh, which is visions. Again, in verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. So around this time, it was very common for religious persons to fast for long periods of time to prepare themselves to have heavenly visions. And often in these visions, they would worship with angels. 
And again, that sounds really weird to us. I hope none of you are doing that. I trust that none of you are doing that. Haven't heard if you are. But here is some of the practical pay dirt to us of what Paul is saying. Look there at the end of verse 18. Paul says there that this kind of spirituality involves the worshiper being, quote, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You see, the focus of this kind of religion is on the personal achievement and the distinction in spirituality of the worshiper. It's a kind of religion that puffs up the person practicing it, right? I did the hardcore fasting, and then I had the special vision that most people don't really get. The focus the attention, the eyes of the worshiper are not on the God they're presuming to worship. They're on themselves. And so they're puffed up. Uh, Brothers and sisters, do you ever do that in your worship? I have to confess, I struggle with that in my heart. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. You know, sometimes when you're on Zoom or on FaceTime, And you're talking to the other person, right? But what are your eyes again and again drawn to, unless you close the window? You, right? I have to cover the little box with my thumb when I FaceTime people so that I won't just look at me while I'm talking to them. God, have mercy on me for my vanity. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we're like that in our worship, Sometimes God gives us understanding of what his word says, and we focus on me, the one with the understanding, right? Sometimes when I'm teaching or preaching, I'm tempted to focus not on the text and not on the Jesus that I'm commanded to preach to you, but on how I'm doing and how you might think I'm doing. God have mercy on us. Sometimes when we get up early to read the Bible and to pray, which is a wonderful thing, what we dwell on is the fact that we got up so dang early and read so much scripture. We are delighting in asceticism. We're looking at the box with me in it. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when we're singing the praises of our glorious triune God, sometimes we're not thinking about our triune God. We're thinking, wow, what an, what an earnest worshiper I am. Right? Do, you, do you ever struggle with religion that's focused on you rather than on the God you're supposed to be worshiping that puffs you up? Numerous Christians throughout church history have observed that near the core of our sin problem is that we are curved in on ourselves. We are preoccupied with the achievements and the glory and the renown and the fame and the appearance and the grandeur of me. And our worship, brothers and sisters, is not necessarily free from that incurvature on self. Saints, may God grant us not to be puffed up in our worship of him So just to be really clear what Paul is talking about here as he's condemning empty religion, Paul is not condemning religion. He's condemning empty 
religion. Well, what, what makes religion empty? Well, Paul gets at that in verse 19. Uh, he says that the problem with this kind of religious person is that he is, quote, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Uh, the problem with these religious exercises that Paul condemns is that they are not means of communing with Jesus. So, lest anyone misunderstand, Paul is not against being disciplined and serious about religion. Paul was hardcore, so to speak, in his pursuit of Jesus Christ. Paul clearly advocates discipline and zeal in our walk with Jesus. But Paul insists that the only kind of religion worth practicing is the kind that involves a vital connection to Jesus Christ, the head of the body. A connection like your body's connection to its head, without which there's no life. I mentioned fasting earlier. The Bible actually indicates that fasting can help Christians. It can be a genuinely, a way rather to genuinely humble ourselves and to seek God's face undistractedly. But Paul would remind us here that fasting and praying and meditating on Scripture, which we're absolutely called to do, these things are only valuable insofar as we are doing them in an exercise of faith in Jesus. So Christian, when you're being religious, is that what you're doing? If you read and study your Bible, which I, I hope that you do, why do you do that? Do you read your Bible to know more than the next guy? Do you read your Bible so you won't feel bad? Do you read your Bible so you won't feel out of place among your Christian friends? Do you read your Bible to accrue brownie points in your sense of yourself? Or do you read your Bible to know Jesus Christ? Do you read your Bible? Because even though most days, most days are not going to give you a spiritual high, and even though many days leave us very confused about what the Bible means, do you read the Bible because soaking yourself day in and day out in the Word of God is how we know Jesus is how we put to death the sin that keeps us from knowing Jesus, is how we're renewed in the spirit of our minds so that our lives and every aspect of our thinking, every facet of our lives reflects the image of Jesus. Is that why you read the Bible? Because knowing Jesus is eternal life. Listen, the Pharisees, they read the Bible. They read the true Bible. They could have gone toe-to-toe with any of us in the room for personal discipline in religion. But listen to what Jesus says about them in John chapter 5. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Brothers and sisters, writing this was a rebuke to me. 
May we read the Bible. May we pray. May we go to the prayer meeting. May we worship. May we sing. May we fellowship. May we serve. May we do our vocations with excellence because we want to know Jesus Christ. Paul concludes there in verse 19 with the phrase, growth that is from God. And notice that growth seems to come as the body is connected, rather the members of the body are connected to one another, presumably connected to each other in love, the joints and the ligaments holding the body together, giving it support. Right, brothers and sisters, there are few things worse than disciplined religion that doesn't produce love. The Bible's not about that. And notice the kind of growth that Paul is talking about here is the growth of the whole church. Right? He says, the problem is when we're not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body grows, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth that's from God. For Paul, this is true spirituality, connection to Jesus Christ the head by faith and connection to other believers especially other believers in your local church, uh, through love and through Christ-centered relationship. Religion that doesn't have anything to do with that is worthless. Let me just take a really brief time out here and make a comment about spirituality, okay? So later in Colossians, Paul's going to make it abundantly clear that the gospel impacts every aspect of our lives, our families, our home life, our work, our work relationships, all our relationships, our communication, our emotions, our interactions with unbelievers. The gospel is not an exclusively spiritual message at all. Uh, but in this section of Colossians, Paul is specifically and explicitly focused on spirituality. He's focused on religious worship. And that's not because spirituality is the only important thing. You couldn't read Colossians and conclude that. In fact, I think it's because spirituality is upstream of everything else in our lives that matters too. Spirituality is the shaping foundation. Our worship is the most fundamental thing about us. Certainly not the only thing. But boy, does it matter. So that's why we've focused specifically on spirituality this morning, on reading the Bible and praying. Not because that's all there is to the Christian life, right? The Christian life is not one long, quiet time with some interruptions. That's, that's not the Christian life. But our worship is so important. It's the foundation of our lives Okay, end of sidebar. So there you have our second point. Jesus is the head of the body of the church, so don't do worthless religion that isn't connected to him. Third and final point, briefest point, you've died with Jesus, so don't follow useless rules. You've died with Jesus, so don't follow useless rules. Paul starts out this third admonition here with these words in verse 20. He says, if you with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. And that's so clear what that means. I really just won't comment on it. I'm just kidding. Uh, then he makes several inferences from this fact that believers have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, I and many Bible scholars think this is the trickiest passage in Colossians. So I'm not certain about this. Here's what I think is going on. So that word, well, the word translated elemental spirits of the world 
That's kind of a best guess translation of the Greek word stoicheia, okay? And in this context, stoicheia probably describes one of two things or maybe both of these things. So first, stoicheia could describe the basic physical components of the world. Uh, So in other places in ancient literature, stoicheia refers to earth, wind, water, and fire. Not to be confused with earth, wind, and fire. There's different spirits. Uh, So stoicheia could be a reference to kind of the pieces that make up the physical universe and the laws that govern them. Or second, stoicheia could refer to spiritual beings, which in some religions are associated with earth, wind, fire, and water. It's even possible that what Paul has in view here is the angels who were mediators in the law given at Mount Sinai. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 2. Very interesting. Both the pagan religions and the true religion of Judaism before Jesus came involved angels or mediating beings and focused on external rituals. One was a true religion. The others were not. But both had those common focuses. Well, so Paul's logic is that because the Colossians have died with Christ to these elemental spirits of the world, they need not live, middle of verse 20, as if they were still alive in the world. So what does that mean? Well, Paul says that looks like submitting to regulations about what you can and can't eat, again, in verse 21. And then he says that these rules about what you can and can't eat, they're human rules about things that perish when you use them, right? When you eat food, the food perishes. So the picture that we get here is that the death of Jesus has changed the Colossians' relationship to the world of cleanness and uncleanness. So what's really important for them isn't external physical laws about food. Food's not where the action is anymore because Jesus has died and changed their spiritual status before God. And particularly, they need not worry about any other spiritual beings, angels or otherwise, other than Jesus, right? Last week I mentioned they don't need a patron saint. They don't need a household god or a witch doctor or a guardian angel uh, to be happy with them. Uh, Because they're united to Jesus, they're dead uh, to that world. Uh, The death of Jesus has brought them out of that religious economy. Paul's final criticism of these kinds of rules is there in verse 23. He says, these, these rules, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That last phrase is really helpful there. Paul is saying that made-up rules don't actually help you fight your true enemy. Made-up rules often proceed on the presupposition that the real evil, the real uncleanness is out there. It's outside of you, but you're fine. So just don't get it on you and you'll be okay. And there's, there's some truth to that. James says that we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. There's plenty, certain, certainly plenty of evil in the world. But Paul reminds us here that our biggest uncleanness problem, our biggest problem with evil is on the inside. It's the flesh which we want to indulge. Often Paul uses that word as kind of an amalgamation for the sinful part that's left in Christians or the sinful part that's the substance in someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? It's not that there's some food or drink out there that's going to make me unclean. It's that I've got uncleanness on the inside. 
And that's why my relationship, even to good things, can become so messed up. Because we're addicted to the indulgence of the flesh. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly why the gospel is such good news. Paul starts this third point with the reminder that believers have died with Jesus. And as we'll see in coming weeks, Lord willing, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are precisely what we need to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Through his death, as we sing sometimes, Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. If you want to grow, if you want to be mature, if you want to fight the indulgence of the flesh, it's not about making up rules. It's all about Jesus. He's got rules. Let's stick with those. Jesus is the substance. Don't mind the shadow. Jesus is the head. Don't do empty religion. You've died with Jesus. Don't do useless rules. I think in light of what we've seen in Colossians this morning, it's especially appropriate Uh, that we have the privilege of concluding our service uh, by observing a true religious ordinance. Uh, This morning, as we've said before, we have the joy of witnessing the baptisms of John and of Emily Dayton. And the Dayton's baptisms are a kind of religious ordeal. Uh, You might even call them a ceremony. But baptism is the exact opposite of the kind of religion that Paul condemns in Colossians. Baptism isn't a human idea. It was established by the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 28. Baptism isn't an impressive religious achievement. It's really not that hard to be baptized. Baptism doesn't control your whole manner of life. It's a one-time event. It's not a substitute for living by faith in Jesus And baptism isn't magical. It's not a ritual that has power in itself apart from God's grace and apart from faith. And best of all, baptism points directly to Jesus Christ. We read last week that Paul writes that baptism in Colossians 2 is a sign of the believer's union with Christ by faith in his death, and in his resurrection. Baptism is a picture for the believer, not a picture of how amazing we are, a picture of what Jesus has done for us in dying and rising. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe one of the clearest pictures we could give you of what it means to be a Christian is baptism. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian Uh, But to become a Christian is to trust in and to identify with Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty of his people who've sinned against God and to rise from the dead to give eternal life to everyone who would believe in him. Uh, When someone gets baptized, that person is saying, I'm with Jesus. I I need his death to pay for my sins. And I need his resurrection to give me a new life. So before I invite the Daytons up to give their testimonies to tell us why they've come to be baptized, let's pray together and thank God for his grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the substance of all that was foreshadowed in your word. 
We thank you that he is the life-giving head of your saved people, the church. We thank you that we have died with him and been given new life in him. Help us, Lord, to walk in the wisdom, in the faith, in the discipline, and in the freedom that you've given to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, let me invite uh, John and Emily to come up uh, and to share their testimonies with us, to let us know how the Lord has worked to save them, to unite them to Jesus by faith, uh, and why they come to be baptized. Come on up. <laughs> 